Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I sat down with the man behind the pseudonym, Rogers Bacon. He's an evolutionary biologist, former high school science teacher, and founder of Seeds of Science, a new scientific journal publishing speculative or non-traditional articles with community-based peer review. Seeds of Science accepts ideas for experiments, novel observations, or thought-provoking questions and discussions from anyone, anywhere. There's only one criterion for submission. Does the article contain original ideas that have the potential to advance science in any way. Neo Academia is possible first and foremost because of you. I appreciate your support and if you love what we're doing here, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for behind the scenes footage and much more bonus content. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neo Academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first of its kind technology that rewards people for consuming high quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks, and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. This is going to be fun. I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about how I meander a lot through conversations in this podcast, and that's what I love the most about it. And I think that's the beauty of Seeds of Science. You're just trying to figure it out just like the rest of us, and you're doing something really creative and innovative that I haven't seen anybody else do. Is there anybody else that has an informal journal of science out there that you've seen? There's a few different things. I know there's something that's called the Journal of very brief ideas. You know, you get a DOI, but you can post it and it's more just people can comment on it. And I think there's a a few different things happening in this space, but it's a startup journal, shoestring budget. We started out the back of a garage, metaphorically. We just saw a niche in the kind of publishing landscape and there's a constant drumbeat of people having issues with peer review, with the payment structure of journals and just all the messed up incentives it creates. A lot of times academics, obviously are not well positioned to do something like this. So it ends up just being a lot of kind of complaining and trying to massage the system and see if we can create some kind of new thing that like changes the incentives. But oftentimes that kind of systemic change can be super difficult. Why not just try to create our own journals, our own platforms that just by virtue of being startups have a greater degree of flexibility and just willing to try shit. Yeah, that's what I like to do. I like to try shit. So why don't we talk about where you popped up from like a mushroom with a pseudonym, Rogers Bacon. I found you through Scott Alexander, formerly Slate Star Codex. Yeah. So, you know, just a little bit about me. I have a master's degree. I did research in on salamander evolution and genetics, but really was interested in just big picture questions about genomic architecture. Why, when we look across the tree of life, do 
Genomes have different sizes, different amounts of genes, things like that. Salamanders, for whatever reason, massive genomes. The human genome is around 3 billion bases. There are salamanders that have 120 billion bases, 40 times as much DNA as humans. And a lot of it's just what we call junk DNA. It's just transposons, just these sort of ancient viruses that get stuck in the DNA and they're hanging out. It's a super fascinating system to, you know, ask a lot of evolutionary questions about just the kind of structure of genomic information. Got my master's degree, was sort of at a crossroads. I think as a lot of people, do I go for the PhD? Do I want to go and work in biotech? Felt like for me, I was a little burned out on some things. I just, yeah, I didn't know if I wanted to go right into industry, felt like Teaching was something I like, I knew I loved and would give me space to still think about my life, think about ideas. You know, you have a lot of free time as a teacher. And so I fell into high school teaching, jumped around the country a little bit and feel incredibly lucky. I found a school where I felt like I was with other very serious teachers thinking deeply about their fields and we pushed each other and I'm in my mid twenties here and I still, I feel like I left research science, but I'm still thinking a lot lot about the ways in which science education feeds into science research, how they're embedded in certain systems that constrain their thinking. I was thinking a lot about just sort of creativity in science as being someone who's molding the next generation of scientists and just feeling like I still had a lot to give to biology and, and, and education. And all of a sudden I had uh, much more time on my hands and a lot of time to reflect. And you referenced Scott Alexander, he was definitely a big inspiration of mine. He's a very well-known online writer now. He's, I don't know, he's probably been writing for 10 plus years, started out writing under a pseudonym. He's a psychiatrist, I think by day, but just a blogger, but super smart, writes about scientific topics. You know, he's an incredible writer, also incredibly humorous and just writes about a whole breadth of topics, psychology, science, culture, politics, whatever. And so somebody like that was just like a huge inspiration in me. Like he just said, fuck it. I'm just going to do a lot of writing online for a lot of years and just build up a reputation. So I just was like, man, I'm just going to create my own pseudonym and uh, start writing. Had some early successes. I had an article go viral pretty early on and even Scott Alexander like commented on it. And that was like, wow. And it was like, maybe I can actually just do this and just, just keep writing, exploring my ideas and bringing us to seeds of science. I just, I was still reading papers seriously. And I found this psychology paper, which was just super fascinating. And this guy, uh, Dr. Kirpan, who's a professor of psychology at the London school of economics, he proposed something called disconnected psychology. And he's developed this idea that when you're embedded in a field, when you're embedded in academia, you face so many constraints and incentives, all the norms of your field, all the, just the kinds of types of studies that are acceptable. There's many ways one can do psychology. It doesn't have to be this sort of experimental paradigm. We bring, you know, undergraduates into the lab and subject them to all these like little manipulations. So there's a little physics envy here, like he talked about like yeah. psychology, trying to dress up as an experimental science where with psychology, you can do self-experimentation, just theorizing all kinds of things. And he just felt like there might be room for disconnecting people, letting them on purpose become isolated. And so they're inherently 
not following the trends of their field and are developing their own methods and norms of investigation and research it sort of resonated with a lot of the things that I was thinking about in regards to how do I get my students to become scientifically creative when again, I know they're just going to be on this kind of conveyor belt in academia, taking the same classes as everyone else and the same labs and this and that. And credit to him, I emailed him and was like, Hey, you know, I almost fancy myself as a disconnected psychologist. I'm not an academic. I'm just this guy who just is developing his own ideas just on his own and credit to him for just being open-minded. I mean, how many times do professors get emails just from this guy who was a random high school teacher slash blogger, and they're actually willing to engage with him and his ideas. And out of that, we ended up writing a paper that's sort of why should we get amateurs involved in psychology? What can they really add? How can we help them add value? And not just in this like kind of superficial citizen science way where it's like academics sets the whole project and he has amateurs donate data or annotate the data, do something like very low level, but like, you know, how can we form meaningful relationships between amateurs where they are contributing ideas and actually helping with kind of every aspect of the research process that led us, of course, to think about, you have to incentivize amateurs in some way. They might want money. They might just want recognition. They might just want to feel like they're part of the academic conversation in some way. A big sort of choke point there is publishing. And we just started to think about all the ways that publishing is, can be really, you know, exclusionary. It takes a lot of know-how to publish. If you don't have a fancy affiliation, like that's just going to be a huge uphill battle. Seeds of Science, we're trying to specifically fill this niche between random blog and prestigious scholarly journal and carve out a space for the speculative, the exploratory, the aesthetic aspect of science writing that is in some ways beautiful or humorous or inspirational because we feel like that's uh, that is a dimension where, uh, you know, the barrier to entry is pretty low. I'm just a random guy who had a background in biology. I read a lot of psychology and I'm not going to be able to get in the lab, but I do feel like I have interesting speculative ideas and that could be something that an academic would be able to run with in some way, but I need some way to actually get into the conversation. And that's certainly one of the major motivations for Seeds of Science. What you're doing with Seeds of Science is basically trying to create more Scott Alexanders. What inspired you, I think? You want to see more people putting their conjecture out there. And I think you're right about the barrier to entry being low in terms of writing. Like anybody can write something. But the question is eyeballs. The eyeballs are the currency. And there's little to no incentive for people to start to develop a career in writing these things. What kind of incentive structure do you think will help to cultivate more people like you and like Scott Alexander? Yeah, it's a really good question and a tough one. On one hand, it's just people want other people to engage with their ideas. It, it's hard to really stick with developing something when you just feel like you're shouting into the void. You know, one thing Seeds of Science does there is our peer review is, we call it like a community-based review. We, uh, we really leaned into the kind of botanical theme. So we're Seeds of Science, and that doubles as a name for our article where, you know, yeah, you have something that's conjectural, not 
fully formed, you know, you can think of our articles as being a kernel, a seed of something that could blossom into a true hypothesis, an entire kind of research program. And then we call our reviewers gardeners, tending the garden of ideas. You know, when you submit an article, in contrast to a normal journal where you might have two anonymous reviewers, you're going out to our entire community of gardeners right now, 200 plus strong and growing, and you might get 30 people that are reading your article and giving you thoughtful comments. Our review is, you know, maybe in contrast again to typical journals where there's more of a fault finding and gatekeeping focus. We certainly want people to be critical, but the idea here is also to help this author extend his ideas. And so our comments, you're not necessarily trying to keep them out of the journal, you're saying, well, that this article is great, but have you thought about X or maybe you can develop it in this direction. We actually publish all the comments along with the article, providing this kind of nice kind of holistic view of the author's ideas. So that's one local thing that we're trying to do is get eyeballs on your ideas and get more communal feedback. You know, as far as you yeah, have the bigger question, like how can we create more Scott Alexander's, things like that. Some of it needs to be forging relationships with professionals, like enduring collaborations. I brought up Dr. Kirpan, who's the co-founder of Seeds of Science. Just for me, like him responding to my emails, us writing a paper together, and now going on this venture, like that just gave me a lot of confidence that, okay, I'm not crazy. I can actually contribute valuable things to the kind of larger scientific conversation. You know, another example is this guy, Dr. Robin Hansen, who wrote a book with an amateur. Again, it's hard for an amateur might have really cool ideas, but how is he going to pitch this to a publisher? The academic can leverage his prestige, his position to, you know, give opportunities and find ways to reward the amateur. My, so my concern is not rewarding the amateur. The amateur has actually got more to gain from this than the academic. The academic has absolutely no incentive to participate with amateurs whatsoever. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really tough question. Sorry, it's a tough question. <laughs> me. I mean, I think some of it is, it's been the big kind of cultural sense. Like, I think the more and more we have people like, Scott Alexander and other people like that, you know, who just become, I think you termed the phrase Substack scholars. Once academics start to see that there are these people out here, that they have a platform in many cases, they have a sort of popular appeal and like readership that they're just not going to have as academics. It, you would hope that slowly it starts to get into the water and academics might realize, man, maybe I could do something pretty unique. I don't know. I don't think so. Because from what I've seen, so I was just in an academic discussion group yesterday. Yeah. And anytime I enter the academic sphere as someone outside of it, even a former academic, the trust is so low. First of all, they don't think I have any credibility. They think I'm a debaser of the ideas. They find what I have to say is pure conjecture and they have no respect for it. What I find is the academics a lot of times want to gatekeep the conservative nature of the academy because it suits them. So I don't have a lot of hope for academics changing inside. Like what you're saying is the inspiration of kind of what we're doing hopefully will 
make that system change. And I, undoubtedly it will, but I don't think it'll convince them that what we're doing is cool. I, I'm totally with you. And I think all these things I'm talking about are like very much on the margins. Um, you know, screw them. I don't, we don't have to, uh, <laughs> you know, again, like just creating our own platforms and structures and forming our own communities. Those things are so entrenched. There's so many forces keeping everything the way they are. I'm with you that start fresh guerrilla warfare style here. The only concern I have is that they are an authority. This discussion group I was in yesterday was basically this gentleman who, I don't know, his name is Brian Alexander. Have you ever heard of this guy? All these Alexanders. Mm -hmm. He has a podcast or some kind of platform where he brings academics on and wants to talk about what's happening inside of academia and he broadcasts it out to people. And he brought in two people who wrote a book on academic freedom, basically saying that within the institution, the concept of academic freedom is that you have tenure, you're protected, you can study the things you want to study without retribution. But a lot of these academics think that is equivalent to free speech. Like they can go on Twitter and say whatever they want. And these people were saying like, oh, hell no, you can't. But overall, I felt like what they were trying to pull was this authority card to say what happens in the academy is up here. And so we have to hold ourselves to this standard up here. If you want to go on Twitter as a regular person and say what you want to say, that's fine because that's down there. The hierarchy of information and what is credible knowledge still exists. People will probably read Seeds of Science, but then what happens with it beyond there? There is certainly room for hierarchy and expertise. There's definitely failure modes here. And I wouldn't say we're necessarily trying to fill that role or, or niche. I think that's okay. So I think fundamentally I'm a proponent of structural and epistemic diversity, just creating different avenues, different platforms. Part of me thinks that for all the complaining that people do about peer review, and there are all these inequities in scientific publishing. I almost think of it like democracy. It's like, is a good democracy supposed to feel very contentious? There's yeah. supposed to be a lot of people complaining and that maybe actually means it's healthy. It's trying to optimize in such a complex system that, you know, it's really easy from the sidelines to just think there's some kind of easy fix. You know, our current systems like do some things very well and they have to, but then, you know, let's create different systems. That's my thinking in some sense. I love it. We talked briefly about the idea of this being like a zine, like a science zine. And you told me that you kind of thought about this of like the early days when there were societies around science. Do you want to kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I've done a little research on just, you know, the history of scientific journals and how did we really get here? One thing that was interesting to me was the very, going back to like mid 1600s, the very first two things that are like called a scientific journal were essentially just the proceedings of the British Royal Society and the French Royal Society. And they actually started about the same time. And funnily enough, the British Royal Society proceedings, it actually started because of a plague, because of a pandemic in London. Like they would have these meetings and scientists would come from all over England and just a bunch of rich dudes who are interested in science basically. But because of the plague, people couldn't really travel. So they just had a local London meeting 
And, you know, they were like, there were so many people that weren't here. Let's just, you know, write up a little proceedings of what happened and just send that out. I mean, it was very much just looked at as this kind of not important thing at first in a very different form from the journals we think now. It was just, we'll publish anything from a member. There was no peer review. The kind of editor of the journal, she, you know, had a lot of control to bring together anything, basically. It really wasn't until post-World War II, when there was just, you know, an explosion in funding and growth in science, really up until the 60s, editors, a lot of times editors had a really tough time finding articles. I mean, they were reaching out to scientists they knew, labs they knew, and like, you guys want to publish anything? They would write their own commentaries. Often the editor just kind of had to fill the pages. And yeah, everything was not a research article. It was much more of a zine or magazine. It was some more, it was a lot more hodgepodge and mismatch. I think that really kind of resonated with what we're trying to do here with Seeds of Science. We're, you know, in a sense, maybe trying to kind of reverse that model where we are starting with a journal. It's very open-ended, just sourcing interesting scientific writing from anyone across the internet. You know, making this something that people are reading more like a magazine and less like they would a specialist scientific journal. From there, through this publishing platform, bringing more and more people into the fold as gardeners and bootstrapping our way into a kind of scientific society where, you know, just these random kind of independent thinkers, like we've talked about, they can contribute to peer review, uh, you know, and interact with each other and just seeing what can bubble up from there. So Seeds of Science is a big rebel in the context of hyper-specialization. You guys are flying in the face of hyper-specialization saying, let's read everything. Let's kind of look into everything. Yeah, definitely. There's weaknesses to that. Sure. Yeah, we don't have a lot of experts in the physical sciences. You know, as you probably expect, more of our work has been biology, psychology, social science, and meta-science. And you know, that's okay. That's fine. Getting people to engage with ideas is something I'm really interested in, especially in this age of all of this limbic activation. Everybody needs this instant kind of connection in order to engage with something. And I think the only way around that I've seen is building communities. You enter into this community and you already know you're amongst people who are thinking along similar lines. And I think people have thought of this as kind of factionalization or tribalization, but I don't see it that way at all. I see it as a place where Everything is so disparate that you know you can walk through these doors and it's like cheers. Everybody knows your name and everybody knows we're here to talk about science and we're here to talk about conjecture and we're going to banter and we're going to be disagreeable and we're not going to get mad at each other about it. So I think that's really cool. Do you have any plans for cultivating that community through meetings or anything like that? Yeah, it's an open question. Maybe we should be doing more on that front. We don't hold meetings or, or discussions of, of any kind right now, but it's the kind of thing that as we build momentum in numbers, yeah, we can really start community building in a more powerful way. I'm totally with you on there having to be some isolation, some kind of a comfortable niche where you feel like people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, so... One thing I've been thinking a lot about is how systems work, like the system of the university, for example. I was talking with my husband about LinkedIn, LinkedIn as a system and how it works and why it works and why it's been successful. 
And I think all of these systems that take off in our marketplace and our culture today have to be exploitable. For example, on LinkedIn, my husband's a recruiter. And so recruiters can kind of exploit all of the data to get people jobs. That's their bread and butter. They make tons and tons of money off of doing this task of exploiting the data. So I was thinking about this in terms of seeds of science. The area that I see where it could be exploited is very obvious. And I want to talk about this and kind of like roll this idea around. People are writing their ideas and science is so guarded. We don't share those things. And you're asking people to share their ideas. They can be exploited. Like somebody can come in, read seeds of science, take an idea. It's This is like shooting fish in a barrel for anybody who is shitty at ideas but good at doing science yeah you can easily imagine how you know if you're a grad student say and you've been just developing this idea and you think it could be something eventually that you know, maybe when you get your own lab that you pursue or then you know a, a nice side project you could develop you know if you see seeds of science and you're like oh this is a cool platform where I could actually get a publication, you know, I could have some people engage with my ideas. Well, in the back of his head is like, but what if somebody scoops me? What if somebody steals this idea? Maybe I should just sit on it. You know, that's certainly a challenge. Getting people to share their best ideas with us. I think some people are just going to be charitable and that's just the way they think, you know, hopefully we can actually provide some value to those people. Some people are just, you know, had been scooped and they're just going to be much more guarded with their ideas. You know, that's maybe just the reality. I think the hope is in the long term that if we really build a big enough platform where publishing on Seeds of Science, I know I'm going to get thousands of people seeing my ideas and engaging with them. We have a sort of kind of cultural capital for doing something unique where it actually becomes cool and, or whatever in some sense to do it. Then you might start seeing people come out of the woodworks and sharing some of their ideas. It's an uphill battle for sure. Yeah, I think it is an uphill battle, but the good news is that any system that can be exploited is probably going to take off. So if that is exploitable, then people are going to use it. And that's a good thing in general. And I think a lot of people in science are worried about their ideas, putting their ideas out there. I, even a lot of people in my own community that I've pinged to say, hey, put your ideas in this idea tournament that I'm working on. I think they're very protective over their ideas. They're very guarded. They're like, this is all I have. And the truth is, is that ideas are a dime a dozen. It's the execution that counts. We need to throw all the ideas out there because then we need people taking the next steps. But if we have a dearth of ideas, then there's not much to move with. So I think we're just talking about front-loading ideas so that there is something to move on. But I'm interested personally with what I'm doing with Neo Academia and figuring out how we can create a network for people who are interested in forming kind of a career. You know, I think about all these overproduced elites and people like you and I who went into grad school with the hopes of doing research and thinking about all these bigger questions and doing science. And then we are dumped out into the world and they're like, thanks, that was fun, but we really don't have a place for you. So I see Seeds of Science as part of this larger neo-academic framework that needs to be built where, you know, we've got organizations and societies and lectures and 
courses and curriculum and all these things that people can do. And we've got these places where they can publish their findings. And I see this as a critical component for people who want to have a career as a thinker. Yeah, totally. And it's, there, there has to be money at some point we're talking careers and I think things are starting to slowly change and that there is more money for people in this space. There's just a recognition that academia is failing in certain respects, you know, with effective altruism or like AI safety, you know, these things are becoming incredibly well-funded and they are funding the guy who is an expert on AI who left academia a long time ago, or the person who's capable of doing like really detailed economic analyses of some charitable intervention, who's just an interested amateur. You know, eventually we have to find ways to financially support these people. But I think kind of what you're saying is that there has to be sort of infrastructure that allows these people to even get recognized in the first place and to even get their work out into the public. You know, if we create all these kind of alt academic systems, hopefully some cream can rise to the top and that can demonstrate to others that this is worth something looking at funding, at least on the margins and just building momentum from there, really. Yeah. I like this model you've kind of made me think about with Scott Alexander, because a lot of people who are intellectual out there, first of all, they hate the term intellectual, which I think we need to start embracing it, but they don't have a place to put their thoughts. We want regular people to be critical thinkers, but we provide no incentive for them to do this. We want people to be lifelong learners, but we have no communities where lifelong learning is cultivated or incentivized. If we want these things as a society, we have to build them. And I think that's exactly what you're doing with Seeds of Science. To your point, Scott is doing some great work in this space, putting out a beacon for these kind of intellectuals and he's gotten to a point now he's doing things like you mentioned that you saw me through a book review contest. He sponsors a huge book review contest with, you know, significant cash prizes. And I produced a book review of this book called The Castrato, which was about these singers in 1600s all the way up through, you know, late 1800s who were castrated and grew up, you know, in the Catholic church. I just wanted to really delve into this in a deep way. I had some interesting thoughts about how some of these castrated singers were literally the first rock stars. You know, I wanted to draw parallels to the transhumans and how, if we start really powerfully modifying people, what kind of position they might take in society. And I wouldn't have done that really, unless there was cash prizes. I know Scott's fan base, they're intellectuals, as you say, who would actually read a super long book review about castrated uh, singers. <laughs> Seeds of Science got a $6,000 grant through his blog. So I think that's a good model here where he's able to do these things because over a long period of time, he built up a massive fan base and, you know, he's finding ways to, you know, actually direct funds from tech people who are interested in all of this stuff and direct it to people like me. I think for all of these creative thinkers, these brilliant minds who are out there, we have to incentivize them to do shit. Like we are, we, they're just sitting there untapped. And I found the same thing to be true. I submitted an application to the Future of Life Institute world building 
uh, mm -hmm. contest. And I just grabbed a bunch of my friends who were in my book club and I'm like, hey, y'all want to do this? And they were like, okay. So I had to organize it and make it happen. But then we got an honorable mention. But these people would have never done that if it wasn't incentivized by a $20,000 prize. There has to be not only incentive structures, but a larger framework because nobody knows about this. The system we've set up with academia is you go to college, we know you're going to make more money. And so there was like this framework, this bureaucracy that people went through that they knew they could go there. And I think this is the nature of bureaucracies. They build, they collapse, they become less useful, they become bastardized. And that's yep. what's happening to the current university framework. I think there's still a place for research in the university, but in terms of creative minds and cultivation, you can't be teaching people how to be robots and then expecting them to be creative thinkers. So I think this sphere of neo-academia or alt-academia that we're talking about is really a place for creative thinkers. And it's really hard to build a framework for them where they're going to be able to get access to everything they need. Becoming a PhD scientist or, you know, reaching the pinnacle of your field, you are going through an absolute gauntlet. You know, I, I was listening to your uh, recent podcast with Dr. Kashdan. You know, he, he was talking about agreeableness. So I just think like to make it all the way through the academic gauntlet, you need to have kind of a high level of agreeableness. You need to be willing to tolerate a lot of bullshit in your classes. You need to be incredibly conscientious. Um, you know, somebody who's not only capable of working very hard for long periods of time, but like is okay with tedious work is, you know, going to be able to check all the little boxes has a level of kind of social know-how all these things that are tangential or at least even negatively correlated with like being a kick-ass creative scientist. And, you know, I just wonder, like, you know, like I made it to my master's degree and then I would say, yeah, I got to a point where it's like, I don't like being this organized all the time. And like, I can work hard, but I don't want to work that hard. Uh, like I get bored easily. I need to jump between things. And some of that's just not conducive to rising to the top of these systems. And like, you know, they do a good job of sorting people who are truly talented and smart and creative, but you know, what about the person who loves biology, but maybe the economic realities in their life are like, you know, I can't become a PhD spend seven years doing this or. I love biology, but I also love computer science and I would like to be a part-time biology researcher. It's like the gig economy, you know, I, mean, I want to dip in and out of research, whereas the system we have now, it's like all in or out and that's inherently exclusionary. I almost, I worry about sort of the channeling of psychological diversity and people who are excluded from academia just because they're just not willing to grind in that way or something about the bureaucracy or hierarchy of it. Just like, they're not agreeable. Like, you know, Dr. Kashdan was talking about, we need those people to be weaved into the conversation too. Right. Yeah. And I think the university does a really good job of filtering for people who are well-rounded to a certain extent, but obsessed to a degree with success. Because yeah. in order for me to be successful in my track, what I was doing, I was a very successful grad student. I had a wonderful PI who helped me. She wanted me to be successful. So I published all the time, but I was doing animal experiments all the time. I was helping other people with their experiments all the time. So I was very prolific in grad school. And then when it came time to go to postdoc, I knew I had to go to a pedigreed postdoc. Otherwise I had no hope of 
going on and getting a tenure track position. So I went and applied to this amazing lab in, at UNC Chapel Hill. I had this huge imposter syndrome, but I couldn't go anyways because my husband's career was starting to take off. And he was like, babe, this is going to like ruin our marriage. And so I had to put that aside. And I took a postdoc that I was not excited about. And I knew it was curtains for me at that point. Mm -hmm. So I quit six months in the postdoc, gave up my whole dream of having my own research lab, R1 institution. I gave up everything because I sacrificed it for my family. There was a lot more to it with this guy that I was working for. His expectations were out of control, but I ultimately sacrificed it for my family. And so Basically, we're selecting for people who don't give a fuck about anything else. I hate to say this about academics, but I've met a lot of them. A lot of them are fucking assholes. And yeah. so we are selecting for people who are insanely driven in this new crop of PhDs. The old crop of PhDs, people who got academic positions maybe in like before the 2000s, 90s maybe. It, even the competition then wasn't as fierce. The institutions stopped growing in mm. the 70s, but the competition is cutthroat now. So what we're selecting for in our institutions of higher learning, the authority on knowledge, is a bunch of cutthroat people who are willing to do anything to get their spot in the sun. That is not only not conducive for creativity, but it's actually probably detrimental on whole to human progress. So I like what you're doing and saying that we could have people who have just a creative idea that want to put it out there. We should be incentivizing that. We need to start moving towards a more holistic framework anyways for everybody because a lot of jobs are going away. The entire work economy is changing. So why couldn't we have a part-time biologist? hundred percent. And I mean, disciplines will differ. Like, you know, molecular biology might be a little bit harder to dip in and dip out than psychology. Even pretty obvious things like the whole publisher parish system. It incentivizes short-term concrete goals, right? Things where, you, okay, I know I can do this for the next year or two and it's going to pay off. Uh, whereas an amateur, you know, not in that whole system, they don't have these same time horizons. Being an academic, you are going to be living a certain way. Like you said, you are not going to be somebody who develops a huge amount of expertise in something else. You're not going to be a professional athlete. You're not going to be like a survivalist type of person, any number of things. And whereas somebody who is, you know, a kind of part-time psychologist, but a full-time like Olympic athlete, you know, it's one thing to be a sports psychologist. It's one thing to be the athlete and then be like, no, I actually have insights from my lived experience uh, that give me like valid psychological ideas, or I have access to some, you know, weird subgroup or some, some kind of niche culture that Somebody who is an academic is just not going to have access to, um, you know, right. this kind of goes back to the whole weird problem in psychology, getting that, that grant and doing this thousand subject psychology study and it's big and prestigious. And I have to hire people to run this huge, complicated study. That's great. That's really sexy, but, uh, there's certain forms of science that people are moving away from, you know, cause they could be denigrated as like stamp collecting or basic observational research. Whereas the amateur, they might feel like, 
I'm actually observing this really interesting thing and I'm going to observe it for a really long time. And that's just not going to be something that a grad student is going to do. Um, or even in the article, we talked about aimlessness and an amateur is going to have space for, I have this vague intuition that there's something interesting if I pursue this direction uh, and I don't have to justify it to my PI. I don't have to worry about publishing. And so I can just take my time with it and wait for it to develop over time. And, you know, some people's cognitive style is just going to be more amenable to that way of thinking versus the plan and execute, which kind of has to be the paradigm in academia. So, right. I want to know your goals for like the next five years. And then I want to kind of play with how, you know, we can help you get there. Yeah. We as in the community of people who like to think. <laughs> The society right. of, of random thinkers. <laughs> I think this kind of goes back to, you know, what I'm just saying. Like, it's, it's a little aimless at this part. And I'm okay with that. I, I, like I said, my cognitive style is not the plan and execute. I like to go with the flow and um, have an aimlessness about it. So, I mean, I think the, you know, the most immediate goal obviously is we want more gardeners, more people reviewing our articles, giving better feedback for authors, which incentivizes more authors. They see, wow, like right now I said, we have 200 gardeners. I wonder, you know, what happens when we have 500, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000? And, you know, that's a really powerful feedback mechanism. Uh, and also I, I wonder when you have that many people on board that, like I said, are united around some kind of value about around a, you know, a particular flavor or style of science. That's a little more aesthetic, speculative, exploratory. Yeah. If we get those people together, what is, what can evolve? What kind of systems can come out from that? Can we start to put together uh, working groups on particular topics, people who are, you know, making observations in a particular domain or who want to develop a certain area of research that they feel like is underappreciated. And we maybe provide a platform for people to start creating their own communities and our model, or it's a very different model of what a journal can be. So there's just, you know, like our one challenge is like, you know, how do we get people on board and we are constantly trying to find ways to incentivize gardeners to participate. Obviously some people will think it's cool that I made this really helpful comment that, you know, extended the ideas in this article and boom, that article got published. It's searchable in academic databases. And you can see right there, my, my comment, we give authors a chance to respond to comments and you can see all the, you know, there was actually in the paper, there's a little kind of interesting back and forth. Some people will think that's really cool. Um, like I said, we've had people who are retired PhDs who feel like, yeah, I still have expertise to share. And I, you know, I'm just hanging out. I'd love to just give comments on these papers. We also have a thing now where, uh, say that you, over the course of a year, you've made seven like substantial comments on our papers. We actually give you a biography page on the website. We put all your comments together in a document and give it a DOI, publish it like a paper. So this is a paper trail of all your valuable intellectual work that you're contributing to the peer review process for an undergrad who want to shows like I'm contributing to a scientific journal. Like I, I have a passion for this. Like you can see my comments and just, even if you don't know specifically what I'm talking about, see kind of the structure of my writing and thinking. Um, and maybe again, just like producing a paper trail where if you are the amateur that wants to reach out to an academic or whatever, it's 
you know, that's something on the margins we're trying to do. We are also about to just change the structure of our journal and allow gardeners to become editors, to propose an article uh, of, of someone else's or their own. And, you know, so if you see this like incredible article online and you're like, man, people need to appreciate this. And like, it's a little rough around the edges, but like, this is something that Seeds of Science would publish. But we're also trying to democratize the editorial process. And you come on board, you work with the author to clean it up. You help him work with the revisions and you know you'll get a credit as an editor uh, and we're actually gonna now start paying authors and editors people who do this for some people it will not be a lot it's a token fee i guess it's 25 dollars. we want to pay authors and editors but we can also donate it to charity and so we want to even if it's something small right now we want to get these systems in place to start like really incentivizing people and you know some people this might just be small peanuts but i feel like for some people it you know at least will be meaningful i think it's great i think these little incentives at least we're getting started right and personally I am cobbling together a career or a like being able to make a living out of little things like this right now. And I'm trying to figure out a model so that other people can do it too. Actually on the subject of paying your reviewers or your editors, there's an article I have to review today. Actually, I think the deadline is today about paying reviewers. And I think this is a really interesting thing that I'd love to get into. Maybe you could speak to what you think about peer review and paying people to review articles, things like that. Yeah, we're not paying reviewers at this point. If you're a gardener, it's a mailing list. Essentially, you get sent articles and ignore them for any reason. You're busy, not interested, whatever. But we're hoping you just pop in. You see an article and you're like, oh, this is something I have expertise on. And yeah, screw it. I'll yeah, I can take a little time to write out a comment. Somebody submitted an article to the journal arguing that we should, in fact, not pay reviewers. Some people feel like it's crazy that we don't pay peer reviewers. I think there's good arguments on both sides. You know, I think there are some things that you don't want to monetize that you want to keep sacred. I, I think the scientific publishing is just a big tangled mess trying to optimize for so many things. And there are some inequities and some bad incentives that happen when you don't pay reviewers, but you know, it's a trade-off. And I think if you pay reviewers that could create some really weird, you know, incentives and situations. So let's do both. Let a thousand flowers bloom and you know, let's get some actually like lived data here. So it's a hard one. I mean, yeah, I think payment has a role. I don't think it can be the only thing you can rely on. You know, like I said, we're, we're kind of on a shoestring budget. We want to pay people to do this sort of editing and we want to pay authors. You know, you're not going to make a, a living on, on submitting articles to Seeds of Science. You know, it'd be the pocket change for some people, but in essence, it's almost more just the token. You know, it's just the message behind the fact that like, we, we actually want to compensate you because we're trying to like truly recognize like the valuable work you're doing. Yeah. I think that counts. I think that matters. As more and more of these things are put into place, we'll start to see the value and the benefit emerge. So I'll be curious and interested to see how you map the effects of what you're doing. I, I hope to see some kind of breakout stars from Seeds of Science. So I'll be watching for that. <laughs> Getting, uh, and I think you, you brought up this in another conversation, trying to find these people who want to be gardeners, who will write articles for Seeds of Science. It's hard. It's like an intellectual dark matter. 
Mm-hmm. People are out there, they're a teacher, a guy who works in industry, a person who has no formal scientific training, just, but, you know, is very well read in something because of, you know, some personal interest. How we can find these people, that's a challenge where we're still, you know, any ideas, welcome. Yeah. We want people to be gardeners and build that community. And we, we have this hope that it'll organically evolve and that we can just start doing new things as we scale that kind of just continue to build the momentum. And, but then, yeah, like. Anyone listening, if you read some random science blogger and you're like, man, this guy is freaking smart or nobody knows about this person, you send them our way. These are people we want to know about. We want to publish their work or just whatever we can do to just prop them up and really help what they're trying to do. And this is a little bit what we're trying to do with the sort of democratizing the editing. We want our community to be like, Guys, we know there's a lot of smart people that are doing a lot of reading. Who do we not know about that we should know about? We want to crowdsource this and just find the intellectual talent that's out there on the outskirts. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think people will flock to it if it's there, if it works, if there's incentive, and if they're getting something out of it. So I'm excited to contribute and to do what I can to help support you. Thank you for coming on. And I'm just so geeked about it. I love this. I feel like the zine is, I'm here for it. (laughs) So if there's anything we can do to support you, please let us know. Will do. And right back at you, Natasha. I'm super geeked about neo academia and just, yeah, just having mouthpieces, having people like you in this space who are like, you found me by being on the intellectual outskirts and just being somebody who's really thinking deeply about this and paying attention. You're doing the Lord's work. Uh, Amen. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I got to go review this article now. Just by listening to this podcast, you're doing the groundwork needed to sow seeds of science. So thank you for that. If you're interested in learning more about how to become a gardener, check out the show notes from this episode where you'll find instructions and links to seeds of science, plus a readocracy collection with resources mentioned in this episode, all available at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter.